I can do things that wear it without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the spectacular world of theme park design, that is. You've just set course for discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and gliding the Green River with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. What's in store for us today, Mel? Well, Freddie, we're taking a bit of a different route through the jungle today. We're going to interview a friend of the show, uh, Lou Prosperi. Lou's uh, not your typical guest, but I think our passengers will soon figure out why we asked him to join us. His day job has him developing curriculum for gaming and software companies, but his secret superpower is studying the work of theme park designers and breaking down the principles that guide great spatial design. Kind of like a systematic themology. Well said. Lou's books explore core spatial design concepts like uh, kinetics, force perspective, storytelling through environmental cues and things. And collectively, his books are titled The Imagineering Toolbox. All right, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Okay, so Mel, this is going to seem a little bit random, but uh, I think I remember the first time that I realized that people uh, in uh, positions of power or construction or whatever are actually designing some of the spaces where we live, where we work, where we play. So, well, I don't know if the people in power are the ones actually doing the design, but, <laughs> yeah, but that's, a, that's another conversation. Perhaps. Um, so here, here's, here's my story. When I think, I think I was five or six and uh, we live in an apartment building uh, or apartment complex. And I had these two little friends, to- uh, Tony and Jerry, not Tom and Jerry, that, <laughs> but, I, but it always helped me remember their names. Tony and Jerry. And we were running around playing hide and seek in the apartment complex. And there was this gate. Uh, that we could reach and open up and we could go into this gate and inside were all of the uh, power, the um, all the uh, gauges that, uh, what are they called? The meters, the, the gas and the electrical meters were all hidden behind this little fence. And I remember sitting in there waiting f- to be found uh, in hide and seek and realizing, wait, why aren't these out there? And clearly they've made a space for just these things to be hidden. And it it was really kind of like realized, oh, you hide certain things, you put them behind certain things. And I recognized sort of a strategy for building homes, building places is there's certain things that you want people to see and there's certain things that you don't want people to see. You know, it's uh, funny because uh, in our design work, um, you know, particularly for things, uh, outside of theme parks, that concept of uh, front and back and mm-hmm. on stage and off stage is so foreign to yeah. <laughs> the, the world that we live in. <laughs> you know, like people don't know what the back of a building is, what the front is. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is a shame that uh, that's not just a commonly understood thing. I, my my kind of childhood recollection is pulling up to Disneyland for the first time that I re- recall was old enough to remember what was going on. And 
literally being disappointed because I'm pulling in. I just see this big parking lot. I'm like, where's the stuff? Yeah. <laughs> like, where is everything? Like, I think I was expecting that Wally World Vista, you know, yeah. when the family pulls in and kind of like you still get at Six Flags Magic where, yeah. where all the hardware is laid out for, for, for full display. Yeah. From yeah. the freeway. But yeah, I'm just like, you see this one little uh, Victorian train station and yeah. that was about it. And big uh, empty parking the, lot. The concept of an intentional reveal, you know, was uh, kind of had yet to be discovered by me at that stage. Yeah. Uh, I, were, I recently went and uh, listened to Imagineer Joe Rohde uh, talk at the Getty Museum, and um, he 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 began his talk about the history of art, the lineage of theme park design, tracing all the way back to the Romans, cathedrals, the Baroque masters, and things like that. And he was talking about how his team draws upon those things, those same principles they were using way back then. To, in the creation of modern lands like Pandora or Galaxy's Edge, things like that. Um, and he began with uh, the idea of um, surface, that you see the surface in, in, in Rome that was marble, but it was only you know a few inches deep of marble. The rest was all concrete. And that, that talk was so educational. Um, he, we were sort of learning and... Um, Joe was helping us to intentionally understand a sort of graduate school course in um, in theme theming, and that it's not just limited to this new stuff that we do. It's it's been passed down through generations. So, I wanted to ask you this opening question. Let's let's talk this out. In what ways do you see people in our industry, themed entertainment, utilizing this wisdom and techniques of centuries, and then passing those down? in the same sort of uh, those same time honored guiding principles, passing them on to the next group of artists. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because I've always seen that, that direct uh, parallel with, uh, you know, uh, ancient uh, spatial storytelling, if you will, <laughs> particularly as manifested in sacred space design. Because that, right. that's a, just an extremely obvious situation where you have some of the, the, the masters of the day, the master builders is the original definition of even the word architect, um, that uh, really were responsible for this, this full holistic um, multi-sensory experiential design inside, outside. They're designing the urban square out in front of the cathedral. They're right. designing that whole uh, arrival sequence. They're um, they're basically translating stories to an illiterate uh, crowd. And uh, again, using the state of the art technology of the day. If if that stained glass windows, that was that was pretty high tech uh, back in the day. You know, um, <laughs> the and, IMAX of and the we, day. we've always drawn a parallel with that because we do actually sacred space work as well as uh, current. Uh, theme park work and entertainment destinations. And again, for us, that common thread of telling stories in three-dimensional space is is timeless. And there's lessons that uh, have long ago been forgotten by most uh, modern and contemporary architects because at some point in time, there was this divorce of uh, modern architecture Mm -hmm. from that idea of narrative. And, uh, you know, they, they really adopted this mantra, form follows function, Whereas historically, uh, with Michelangelo and, and yeah, the, yeah, the boys, yeah. uh, form also followed fiction. Yeah. Uh, spaces always told stories, and again, uh, those techniques of um, of you know not being worried about the the surface material being the same as the structural material. The idea that it's okay to have a veneer or a facade, yeah, yeah. Um, you know that that kind of 
covers over the, the superstructure. Um, so yeah, you know, to me, it's just remembering what collectively we lost and and we found that in, uh, some of our education work, particularly in, you know, architecture, uh, programs that we almost have to de-architect, uh, folks that have been raised up in kind of a a (laughs) post, uh, narrative, uh, training because, uh, we're finding that the world is very much hungry for narrative Mm -hmm. and story and connection. Yeah. Uh, well, our guest today is an educator uh, and uh, somebody who sort of deconstructs uh, the um, the the what what the world is like and then tries to communicate that back, just like Joe Rohde did, communicate it back to his audience. Um, and uh, education is supremely important, especially uh, if we are going to pass those concepts and ideas down to uh, the next ready generation of, uh, of builders. Well, we're, you know, in a unique kind of micro industry because we, we mm-hmm. get so busy uh, drinking out of a fire hydrant that, <laughs> and we got our heads in this hole, you know, it's, uh, that we're either trying to get the next project or yeah. just trying to finish yeah. the project that we're on that um, quite <laughs> often it's, it's easy for, for example, for an entire generation uh, to kind of retire out and to uh, realize that, oh, crap, we, we forgot to kind of raise up the right. next generation to take that time out. We're so busy. It's, it's hard to make margin, make time uh, to train uh, up that uh, next generation. So personally, I've always been really passionate about that, I, that, that focus on intentional uh, education, transfer of knowledge, yeah. uh, you know, trying to be accessible, create uh, time. Um, you know, we've we've actually a couple of us uh, uh, at Storyland have been blessed to be able to actually start uh, kind of a new West Coast uh, uh, program um, out at a university called CBU. Uh, we've got a, a program called the College of Architecture, Visual Arts, and Design that we've really been able to kind of from the ground up kind of model some of our studios' multidisciplinary approach of uh, in this this uh, program accredited program. Now um, you've got architecture, you've got urban design, you've got film, branding, communication. Um, And and one of our uh, young architectural interns actually recently just uh, finished his graduate degree and is now an adjunct professor there. And so we're really proud of Jacob. And um, so, you know, I, you know, I just can't encourage, um, uh, industry vets <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to follow, uh, you know, some of our, uh, friends leads like Joe Rohde, uh, you know, I mean, to be able to do the, the level of education that that guy puts out on Instagram, uh, Tom <laughs> Morris, you know, on Twitter. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, these guys are taking time out of, uh, pretty busy, uh, uh schedules to, uh, again, transfer that knowledge. And, uh, I personally have really appreciated those efforts. That's great. Well, that's exactly what I think our, our guest today discovered when he began to sort of systematically deconstruct and organize what he sees as a pyramid of Imagineering, which eventually became the title of his first book. Um, it, tell us a little bit about Lou Prosperi and how uh, we got to know him. Well, you know, ironically, um, I happen to <laughs> have had his book in my overnight bag on the airplane. Uh, I just randomly, I don't know where, saw the title, picked it up. Um, there's just, there really is a, a kind of a dearth of uh, a lack of uh, quality kind of non-fan, non-kind of just coffee table uh, kind of, you know, meat and potatoes kind of uh, textbook 
uh, type uh, books on the industry. Uh, and I had come across uh, one of his two books and happened to be reading that when uh, Lou had actually reached out to me uh, as just a, a fan of the podcast that's and an avid listener. And I thought, boy, that would be really great to just have this conversation. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's get started, shall we? Uh, back to the Blue Sky Loft at Storyland Studios with our guest, Lou Prosperi. Hey, Lou. <laughs> Great to have you on board. Hey, Mel. Hey, Freddie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm a little flattered and honored uh, both to be joining you today. Well, it's a unique thing for us today to uh, have you on because um, as a as an author, a researcher, um, a developer of curriculum, uh, et cetera, you're not necessarily the typical uh, theme park industry master of the craft that we usually talk to, but you've spent so much time and research uh, thinking about and um, diving into what it is that um, folks in the theme and entertainment industry do that it just it just felt great to kind of get somebody in here who can look at from the outside and speak to exactly um, what it is that's uh, going on and when people create really fantastic themed environments. And I I was just uh, mentioning that uh, I actually have one of your books in my overnight bag. I'm <laughs> right in the middle of it uh, before we even started talking about it. I've just been uh, digging in. Um, you know, one of our uh, things that uh, I personally get to do, the privilege of doing uh, is for every one of our new hires at Storyland Studios is uh, I, I spend it, we get kind of a day with the, the founder, uh, a day with the principal, and and I kind of walk them through the, the spatial storytelling kind of crash course uh, overview. And some of that is almost kind of de-architecting uh, people that have been trained as architects or, you know, <laughs> kind of helping them forget what <laughs> right. they've learned through, you know, grad school um, and, and really just kind of helping them step into a, a different way of thinking. And I recognize that the outline that I use is basically your first two books. I mean, I go through kind of the, the new type of uh, language and, and the power of words creating worlds and completely new paradigms. Uh, and then secondly, we go through the, the process. I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, kind of the process really creates our product and that the journey really defines uh, and is the destination. And um, so, like I said, you're, we're speaking the, the same love language. And I, I love that you've so succinctly and accurately uh, kind of been able to distill that for uh, not only uh, our industry, but, uh, you know, I think more intentionally uh, for those that are that are outside of the industry. So great work so far. <laughs> Can't well, wait thank for you. book and, three. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, you know, thank you. Um, for those kind words, my goal, you know, the original target audience was more people in any sort of field who are doing something creative. And I have a belief that there's a level of creativity in everything we do. Um, but if we can also, if I could, if the audience could also include the theme park industry, theme design industry, then, you know, sort of my cup runneth over. That's just extra. <laughs> that's, that's just, uh, uh, a great extension of of the uh, of the target, I guess. Well, we've got to we've got to start by talking about how how we even uh, kind of connected to get you on the show. It really started with you and I just connecting on social media about kind of our kind of uh, shared. Uh, nerd uh nerddom for uh mm -hmm. some uh you know trolley park amusement park history uh, particularly uh so 
tell us a little bit just about uh, growing up in the shadow and in the wake of uh, Pleasure Island up in <laughs> the northeast there. Right. So I currently live in in Wakefield, Massachusetts, which, as you made as you mentioned, is was home to Pleasure Island uh, back in. 60s early 70s yeah, well, i think what, about, what the heck is pleasure island for uh, those <laughs> so the... pleasure island was one of the three parks not that, not uh, meriwether pleasures uh domain no not that no, one no, no. nor pinocchio's no. <laughs> uh, getaway <laughs> definitely not those it was one of three parks that was built along with uh freedom land and there was magic mountain yeah. in denver uh, magic mountain might be the other that were built by cv wood and a couple of his partners and cv wood was a a guy worked on Disneyland who not as well known as some. Uh, I think um, actually Todd Pierce's book, uh, Three Years in Wonderland, does a great job of talking about his contribution. But after he worked on Disneyland, he wanted to build other similar parks. And That's Pleasure right. Island was one of them in Wakefield. Uh, I did not grow up here, so I didn't did not go. But my in-laws, I, I moved here because this is the town my wife is from. My in-laws went and they remember it. Um, and so, uh, but one of the other, uh, I, so I don't have a whole lot of connection. I do, I am friendly with a gentleman named Bob McLaughlin, who is, uh, the president and founder of friends of pleasure Island. And he does tours of the space where it is. And there's still some remnants of the park. No there. kidding. Just a few, but yeah, but I think, I think there's a pond where, if the if the water level drops, you can see the skeleton of a of a pirate ship that was there. Oh, once, or, wow. I thought you were going to say Moby Dick's remains are yeah. still <laughs> still there. Well, so, um, and he does that, and so I have a couple books. Um, but one of the other things that we talked about was uh, Canopy Lake Park. You know, I happened to see you post at one point about one of the few parks you hadn't been to, and I wondered. If that, because I know you also like small parks, you know, you're not just about the big giant stuff. And so I asked about Canopy Lake Park, which is just in Salem, New Hampshire, which is not too far away. It's a place we go. We used to go every year. The last couple of years, it's slowed down. It's like my kids get a little older. Yeah, I love it. We had a project in Manchester, New Hampshire, and mm-hmm. uh, definitely uh, was was lucky enough to get to pull over and, and ride the cannonball. And uh, I mm-hmm. mean, really, to me, it really is one of the pristine trolley parks uh you know uh left remain last man standing kind of thing uh, <laughs> yeah I still yeah have, it's really uh, I, kennywood and knobles and stuff on my bucket list yeah. but uh it was yeah. wonderful yeah i don't think there's a whole lot of those um trolley parks left um and it actually i don't know if you got there but it's got a, a neat little dark ride called the mine of the lost mine or something um it's a little weird because it starts in this mine in New Hampshire and then you end up in an Egyptian tomb. So the storytelling <laughs> is a little weird, but but it's charming, you know, and it's there's not again in these parks, there's not a lot of classic dark rides like that either. So right. It's, it's That's awesome. To be able to, yeah, we were also to lucky that. enough to have a project that was actually on the bones of uh, another C.V. Wood Park, the one outside of Denver uh, that was known as Heritage Square, but originally it was Magic Mountain. And uh, mm-hmm. that park was really unique in that it had its kind of core spine of its, its entry complex, railroad station tunnels, uh, Main Street uh, that was called Centennial City originally mm-hmm. uh, that was designed by Wade Rubbottom, who was the art director for Main Street at Disneyland and who did this wonderful storybook style American Gothic kind of uh, kind of an update of Frontierland and Main Street, almost like a hybrid between the two of kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a, an opulent silver mining 
town. But I mean, the, the architecture was just wonderful. They had this dinner theater there and just shut down, I think last year. Um, and mm. so, uh, whoever, uh, didn't get a chance to experience that before it is shut down. It was actually run as kind of a, a family fun center for a lot of years. Uh, but, uh, the, the park was really stillborn. It really never, uh, operated as, as intended. But, uh, anyways, just a little aside there. Yeah. So that's how yeah. you guys well, met. But the, uh, uh, what's really fun is, uh, your books, um, are, are really dive into what, um, the, what you've perceived as through your research as the process and uh, the work that goes into um, imagineering for Disney, but uh, in a lot of ways, the development of attractions and parks and things, um, whether they're Disney or not. Tell me a little bit about um, how you uh, came to uh, write these books and get yourself so um, focused on uh, sort of digging up uh, the digging up the bones of um, so many of these attractions that we love. Well, so it started with my first trip to Disney World um, in May of 1993 for my honeymoon. I was working as a game designer in the adventure game industry, where I was in charge of a pencil and paper role playing game similar to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, my son would love to talk to you. He just dove into <laughs> that world recently. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was in a, quote, creative field. And then, but we went and, you know, I, as I think I tell the story in, in one or both of the books, the day we went, it was a rainy Sunday in May. And back then, the parks weren't that crowded. We literally walked on everything in Future World at Epcot Center. And that was when it was Epcot Center still. So I think Horizons was still there. World of Motion was there. The original Imagination Pier, uh, Pavilion. And... With each attraction, my you know my eyes sort of got bigger. Each one, you know, we started with Spaceship Earth and Universe of Energy, where the whole theater moves, right? And then Horizons, where you go through, and Wonders of Life, and then Horizons, where you go through, uh, you know, this history of technology or the development of technology into the future. And then by the time we get to Journey to Imagination, um, this is the one that really spoke to me a lot. Um, and particularly, I remember very specifically, um, it ties to one of your first guests, Tom Morris. I think he was he was part of the design team on this. There's yeah, a scene right. where there's a the the car goes through your your ride vehicle goes through a, a doorway and the word avalanche or tumble is sort of sculpted out of rocks around the doorway and I just it just struck me in such a powerful way like wow this is this is creativity like I've never seen before. And so I started learning and then a couple of years later that first Walt Disney Imagineering coffee table book came out. And I started getting into it and wondering, you know, what can I learn? What can we learn from this that I can apply to game design and other things? Because I'm a big believer in, um, you know, what I think Brian Collins, he's a former Imagineer. He, the term he uses is creative cross-pollination, right? This idea of taking ideas and principles from one field and applying them in another. Yes. Um, and so I started studying this process and, and then had to you know, take a break because my, my son was born and my daughter was born. We moved, we were living in Chicago at the time, but, you know, but then, then I discovered a whole new raft of, of books had been written. John Hench's book, uh, Carol Marling's book, um, uh, the Imagineering way, that short little book of S small little book of essays. And I started getting deeper into understand. Great little starter glossary, by the way, for anyone. Uh, yeah. Great <laughs> little book. And, and, you know, it's, so I, I love that one and the Imagineering workout. And I've always sort of 
thought of my books as sort of a spiritual successor to those, like the Imagineering Way are, and I hesitate to say that because I don't want to sound too full of myself or anything, but um, the Imagineering Way are essays about sort of creativity in general, how the Imagineers think, and a workout is some exercise to help you think that way. And then my books are what are specific things they do and how you can apply them to other fields. So, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, well said. So I started. Yeah. I started looking at this process and sort of breaking it down and, you know, some of it was laid out in some of the, in some of the books I'd had, but some of it wasn't. Um, so I knew, you know, blue sky and concept and design and construction. And I knew there was a use of models and and some of those. And, and, uh, while I was reach, uh, reading and researching, I was reading Jason Searle's pirates of the Caribbean from the magic kingdom to the movies came across this line about, uh, he, again, let's see, Jason was quoting Randy Bright, who was quoting Blaine Gibson. So Jason was quoting from Inside Disneyland by by Randy Bright, who was quoting Blaine Gibson about creating these readable faces. It's like scenes. one of those Russian doll situations. <laughs> that's <laughs> the right. quote within the that's quote. That's right. That's right. Well, I remember when I read Inside Disneyland, I'm like, that's where it came from. I was trying to put the pieces <laughs> together. Um, and so about creating this readable scene, and I realized I was working as a trainer and instructional designer and technical writer then, that this is what we do when we build training content. If we build a slide with a flow chart or a diagram to simplify a complex subject, that's the same thing. You know, the reason we, we quickly understand what's happening in the jail scene in Pirates is because it's designed to make to be readable. And, and so I, I then said, well, what are the other principles? Well, they're all about story. Oh, and they use weenies, and they talk about transitions, and they use forced perspective. So I started to, to go back through my library with an eye towards what are these principles that, that they use. Um, and I eventually built a, um, a presentation and eventually I started, I think my first version was 12 principles, and then I added a couple more and came up with 15. And then as I looked at them, I realized 15 is a lot to just talk about in a straight line, if you will, like linearly just, you know, there's that that um, belief or that study or research that says we can, people can remember seven plus or minus two things. Um, so I, I wanted a way to organize this. So I realized there were some foundational principles and then some of them seemed to go together in terms of navigation or wayfinding. Some of them were purely about visual communication. Um, plussing, which is, you know, what I call Walt's Cardinal Rule was clearly at the top. So I played around and came up with this pyramid. Um, and then I presented it at, a, at an instructional design conference. And um, and then along the way, I'd still been thinking about the process. And then I had all along been thinking that the that it could make a good book, too, if I broadened it a little bit and maybe added some information about some other fields that I was familiar with. And then I got an email from Bob McLean at Theme Park Press who said, I saw your <laughs> slides I, that I had posted that this, this would make a great book if you made it a little broader and added maybe game design to it. So he had the same sort of idea that I did. Um, so we worked together to, to um, he, he was the publisher, he's the publisher of both books. Um, and originally the book was supposed to be one that was supposed to have the pyramid and the process. But as I was reading, writing it, I realized it was going to be huge if I did that. Mm-hmm. To be able to devote the amount of space I really needed to, to the process part, I wasn't going to be able to do that. So I contacted him and said, hey, how about we split it out and do a second book? And he was on board with that. 
So I, I I love the the kind of to me it's I my nickname is almost like the the paradigm in the process because the the first one is really it is about the 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 vocabulary the glossary the the paradigm the the kind of the the unique way of thinking. Um, but when when you're trying to do the elevator pitch uh, to a, a fellow instructional designer or um, it, or just kind of explaining kind of um, this approach and where where you've kind of distilled it from, uh, what's the the why uh, that you've uh, found or or the the, the motivation for uh, those in the, in various industries to be willing to look outside of their standard operating procedure? Like, what's the the added benefit mm-hmm. that uh, comes alongside? Well, I I believe that there are lessons all around us in other fields that we can leverage. You know, and I, so I used to listen to Tony Robbins, the motivational speaker, a lot. And I remember very clearly the line he was talking about, you know, feeding your mind and somehow, you know, maybe learning how a helicopter works might help you run your business Mm -hmm. just because you never know. There's principles that work there. And um, and so, as I said, I'm sort of a big believer in looking in one looking, reading beyond your field. Right. I mean, if we. If as an instructional designer or technical writer, all I do is ever read about those by people who do it, and all they write about is that um, I'm only going to get so much better. Um, but if I, you know, if you keep doing the same thing and expect different results, there's a word for that. Um, so I, <laughs> yeah, I believe right. we have to. We have, right? so I believe we have to look outside sometimes for new tools and new ideas and new insights, and. I think there's a creative aspect to, you know, to most fields There's certainly, you know, people don't think of technical writing as a creative field, but it, but it is, there's, there's problems that we face that we have to solve and we need, you know, creative approaches to do that. And so if, if we're going to look for solutions to creative problems, my view is why not look at some of the better, best examples of creativity. And I think theme park design you know, again, typified by Imagineering, uh, I tend to be, you know, Disney focused, but, but I know that some of the work that other groups like yourselves do is obviously at the same sort of level and the same type of type of work. Um, there are lessons there. And so why not go, if you're looking to be more creative, why don't you go to people who are being creative and dig underneath the surface and figure out why it works so well you know why does cinderella castle capture our attention the way it does and why is it you know there are times i think i could go to magic kingdom sit on a bench and stare at it for hours and never (laughs) and never be bored the bow tree i think is how (laughs) the buddha did it (laughs) yeah it is it is a wonderful textbook well i the reason i was asking that is you know definitely we have a, a fair amount of work in uh, fields even outside of themed entertainment in in areas as diverse as education and hospitality and healthcare and, and even commercial spaces and and you know one of the things I have to do uh, not just with our internal team members but with potential clients is kind of educate them on kind of the the de- design differential the 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 return on inve- investment of the of the special sauce the experiential right. ROI sure. right. and uh, mm-hmm. you know kind of walk them through kind of uh, Maslow's hierarchy and, and just the the idea mm-hmm. that like look you can get her done for good fast and cheap you can yeah. you can be the Kmart blue light special but in today's world it's pretty if you're a retailer for example it is pretty hard to compete with 
either Walmart as far as just being the the biggest or the cheapest or Amazon for convenience. And Mm -hmm. so you're going to have to really come up with something that's pretty compelling. Um, And, you know, and what we found is that uh, experience uh, that leads ultimately to uh, things like uh, purpose and transformation. And um, I mean, you know, again, these are things that, uh, you know, the the price tag is a lot harder to, to set. It's not just about how good, fast and cheap, how many billions served at McDonald's. Uh, yeah, that's right. that's yeah. not the way that a lot of uh, consumers these days are making their purchase decisions, you know. Yeah. Um, and they're so, basing it on that experience and yeah. the, what, what, it, what right. it gives to them, uh, their family, their friends, um, to be able to uh, dive into that experience. And it's not no longer a burger or a, a coffee, it's connection. And what I appreciate mm-hmm. about your books is that there's certain things you can learn how to uh, on a on a YouTube video. I just popped one up yesterday to figure out how to grill a, a meat that I've never <laughs> grilled on the backyard barbecue <laughs> last night. But when it comes down to uh, really blowing up the box and, and really launching the bar on you know certain paradigms, it, it does take a little bit more process, structure, and discipline. And that's what I think your your books have done uh, in terms of getting into some meat and potatoes of, of uh, right. you know, going beyond just a, a quick video. So I've got to ask you of the of the 15 um, building blocks of the uh, the Imagineering uh, pyramid, um, do you have a, a few that are just uh, the real kind of ahas that just blew your mind that, that you know, were the kind of the that either the early inspirations for the book or the, or the hardest to chase down. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, readability was clearly right in the middle of that. And it does no, it's no mistake that readability is in the heart of the pyramid. Right. Because that was one that got me thinking about it. Um, creative intent is definitely one. So, and that's one of the foundations for those, you know, the listeners who can't see the pyramid, um, the bottom has five blocks and creative intent being, you know, the objective and why you're telling the story in the first place and why you're doing this and, and keeping focus on that. Um, that was a key one. Sometimes I think, it, you know, you could almost write a book about purpose on its own, like in businesses. And this may, you know, may even happen within your business, right? You do things sometimes because you've done them, not because they're still serving your purpose, right? right. You know, every so often we need to evaluate. Mm-hmm. Um you know, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the others. Um, long, medium, and close shots is one that is sort of near and dear to my heart as a as a communicator, right? You know, um, because I definitely believe in this inverted pyramid, inverted triangle of you know, you start with the broad, like just like a a, a paragraph. You start with your topic sentence, which is broad, That's and right. then you drill down into the details. I mean, um, and uh, you know, and, and again, as a presenter and trainer, pre-shows and post-shows speak to me because, you know, it ties right into the adage of tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Right. Um, so those are those are, are some some of the ones in terms of that are hard to sort of communicate, particularly in the written medium. Um, kinetics is somewhat difficult to explain mm-hmm. in words. Um uh, hidden Mickey's was a little challenging to talk about. I tell, mean, tell me about that. I'm sure that that's it's just not it's not just uh, hidden Mickey's that you found. What's the principle behind um, that level of the pyramid? So that hidden Mickey's is about engaging and involving the audience and sort of pulling them into the experience a little bit. Um, 
and it's it's an interesting one because I, I I like them. They're fun, but at the same time, I can see I understand the criticisms that I've heard from some designers, and that they take you out of the experience. Right? If mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, an imagineer named Wyatt Winter was I saw a Creative Morning talk that he did about he was talking about a hospital that he worked on in Florida, and somebody asked him about hidden Mickey's, and he said that he's not a fan of them because you know. In the Haunted Mansion, you're supposed to be in this gothic mansion, and then, ooh, look at the Mickey on the plate, on the table. Yeah. You know, that takes you out of the experience. But at the same time, it does pull you in, and because, in in my view, once you see a hidden Mickey, you never see it the same way twice. It changes your experience. Now, maybe it pulls you out of the story a little, but it still changes your experience of that scene. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, once you sort of see it, you never see it the same way again. Um, and so that that's why, you know, it sort of engages and involves you. And then, uh, you know, a, a similar principle or tool or technique that I, I like to that are uh, what are referred to sometimes as five-legged goats. Yeah, right. You know, the more generic term is Easter egg, right? Right. Um, yeah, and there, that's it's, al- as, it's almost like breaking the fourth wall. Um, right between right. between you know those five five legged goats of course are are um, where you're you're really inspecting the brush strokes of the artists uh, rather than them doing sort of a Ferris Bueller look at the camera and go aha so um, right. I can definitely see the difference between those two uh, that do engage the audience more um, even the five legged goat I'm I'm in. I'm inclined to believe that some of that's unintentional. Uh, nobody was, uh, I don't think Mary Blair was trying to get everybody's attention uh, to that. Um, but in the end, that's what ended up happening because people who love uh, certain artists, they're willing to go deep and find uh, where they, um, where they communicated uh, right. something, something even deeper than the initial look. I'd be curious to uh, hear your take on, uh, assuming you've been to some non-Disney parks, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, Universal or even some of the regional parks, um, on on parks that either intentionally or unintentionally because of lack of of budget or design expertise or, you know, what have you, that, you know, may or may not know the rules, but basically uh, break, uh, you know, with some of these these principles, you know, I'm thinking of something like transitions, you know, if you're uh, in the middle of uh, Universal Florida, you know, and you're looking across the, the lake or the lagoon there, and, um, you know, there's no attempt to, to hide uh, some of the, the visual um, distinctions between lands. What's, what's your take on, uh, the, you know, California Venture, for example, when it first opened um, with mm-hmm. uh, some budget limitations, um, and kind of throwing the traditional textbook out the window and, and uh, almost working as a piece of almost uh, walk through environmental art, you know, with that postcard entry. Um, any thoughts on uh, what happens when you break the break the rules? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of um, of a couple examples, not only Universal, but even Canopy Lake Park, that small park in New Hampshire that's uh, not too far Um yeah, just traditional they, parks in general, right? Right. That are, right. You know, they can only, um, they, you know, for instance, in Canby, like there is a sort of a land that has sort of a Western rustic theme to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's right next to the the Ferris wheel <laughs> um, and a water park on the other side. So there's certainly some, you know, cha- uh, challenges with uh, transitions and, and sight lines for sure. Um, 
You know, as you said that, one of the thoughts that I had was, you know, I, I enjoy Universal uh, Islands of Adventure. You know, I think I think Hogsmeade is really cool. I think the Spider-Man ride is great. Um, and even uh, King Kong was really fun. But then, but sometimes walking through the land, like, like uh, through uh, Cartoon Lagoon, I think it's called, the land where the cartoons are. Mm-hmm. Um, w- and maybe because I've studied this a little more, I'm paying closer attention than than a lot of the audience. But the the fact that the theme of that land is the medium in which the stories were told, regardless of style or context or any of that, is very jarring. When you see Betty Boop next to Beetle Bailey, right? It's um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's like walking through the Sunday funnies. Uh, it's it's real, right. very much a print media based. Uh, Right. theme right i mean it's still again it's still fun and there's lots of fun stuff to do but it's just uh and i think they're just priorities are are different within certain oh, areas good. i think they definitely spend a lot of focus on it right so within hogsmeade or within diagon alley you know the universal creative team clearly focused a lot of detail on making an immersive environment um but whether or not you maintain that when you Go from there to Jurassic Park. Well, that's maybe not as important, and that and maybe that's true, right? Um, yeah, there's a there's a set of priorities that uh, each uh, enterprise is going to um, to follow, and uh, we we see that differently in each each of the parks. Um, well, and sometimes it's intentionally, you know. Again, part of the magic of you know sure. walking around, for example, a, a literal Hollywood backlot is being on a Western Street, rounding the corner, yeah. and you're in the middle of New York City. And I mean, right. that, sure. that that is, and even some of the original charm of Disneyland was kind of in in that, you know, that yeah, you're in this tiki pavilion. Uh, <laughs> you know, now it's the the tropical hideaway, <laughs> but you know, again, same structure, same building as Victorian. Uh, you know, kind of right. uh, the Jolly Holiday right. Bakery, um, and and there's there's kind of a magic to that um, kind of crash intersection that uh, you know isn't necessarily the the smooth psychological transition mm-hmm. that is more typical of um, you know sophisticated um, mm-hmm. kind of Class A Disney parks, right. but uh, sometimes well, they're intentional. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Um, so uh, you talked about that reminds me of a sort of a distinction I've made since the first book. So. My description of transition is as making sure that change is smooth and seamless. And, you know, in, in the instructional design world, I liken that or I associate that to figuring out the right sequence in which to teach somebody something. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we we have to teach things in an order different than they might do it in the real world. So depending on on the circumstances and the subject matter, you know, that order of, and sequence matters. And so I originally went with the smooth, but then I realized, and I'm, you know, I'm writing the third book. And so I'm taking this up and it's going to deal with the principles in the pyramid. Um, taking the time to sort of rethink maybe. So now my sort of definition of transition is, is making sure that change within an experience serves the story best because sometimes a crash cut is what you want. Right. As opposed to smooth and seamless. And so it's a sort of a distinction I made, you know, probably a month after the book was published. I started thinking, oh, maybe I went too far with that. Now, I did talk about crash cuts in the book, but um, but my sort of definition of transition was about smooth and seamless. So, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, that's great because that, that's kind of what was making, you know, the difference in my mind. You know, the almost like Universe almost has their own language, right? Versus uh, Disney yeah. in some cases. Right. And, and there's different well, effects and so, and, that you intend. And certainly – and certainly in some places, Disney has to has challenges that they haven't overcome 
entirely either. I mean, the transition from um, Mad Teacups to Tomorrowland is, that's a jump, no matter what you do about it, right? (laughs) That's right, right. They're butt up against each other and um, and do race car diesel race cars uh, represent the best uh, 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 transition from those. Um, I I uh, was a little upset with Mel a couple seconds ago when he brought up Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, because uh, I re- I was really that was one of the first things that I saw in this is there's uh, when when you look when you look at your pyramid and for the listeners to kind of picture of a, uh, a five layer pyramid. Um, with five on the bottom, one on the top, um, you, you, he's got, um, loose, got things like it all begins with story. And like you talked about creative intent there at the bottom. Um, and then it builds through the idea of transitions and weenies up to forced perspective as being important and hidden Mickey's as he talked about, and then hitting the top with plussing. And, um, I, I couldn't help but think, you know, that you, there are certain things you absolutely must have. Maslow says it's, you know, food, water, and shelter. Um, and it, it strikes me as being very true to what you've got there. I mean, you're, you're saying, look, if you're going to do this, do it well, start with a story, start with some kind of theming. But then as you progress up, you uh, can add to that. Um, uh, the success builds as you add things like kinetics and uh, hidden Mickeys. And then finally, now that you've got it perfected, now that you're um, <laughs> sort of self-actualized as a uh, excellent park, you can begin to add to it and plus up the experience so that it sort of has a eternal um, long life uh, beyond what you had built. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is that, uh, uh, sync with what you were intending? Well, uh, I certainly wasn't by design, but as you went through it, I was pleasantly surprised to discover that I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, well, and certainly parts of it were like, as you mentioned, the five blocks at the bottom are what I even call the foundations, right? So story, creative intent, attention to detail, theming, and then long, medium, and close shots, right? These are sort of, you, you can't really do this stuff without those pieces in place. Uh, and then we move up to navigation. How do we move the guests around? And then how do we communicate with them? And then how do we reinforce what they're seeing? Uh, and then how do we make it better? So it certainly wasn't a conscious, deliberate um, parallel to that, but, but I can definitely see that now. Um, and again, that's a nice surprise for me. <laughs> I'm going to read into anything people say and, and make it make it my own. You can you can add my name to the to the back of the book <laughs> from now on if you like. <laughs> no. Add Maslow. How do you tell a story when people listen with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit storylandstudios.com or call now 
800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big ideas, best ally. Well, then moving on to your your second book again, a great uh, um summary of kind of the 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 different process that uh we go through from uh kind of pre-design prologue uh all the way through uh what you call the epilogue you might kind of just uh giving us the the book report executive summary uh, of that and then we can dig into some of the the specifics because that was a, sure. a great read as well so um the second book the imaginary process sort of looks at the, a distilled version, a very simplified, very distilled version of the design process that, in this case, the Imagineers use um, from, you know, when they say we need a new ride in Fantasyland to opening Seven Dwarfs Mine Train right. or, you know, pick a land, whatever. And so this was uh, an interesting challenge because, you know, this process, as you well know far better than I do, it's very complicated and very involved. But I was trying to boil it down to, you know, like six or seven basic pieces that were more memorable or or rememberable, if you will, you know. Um, and so, you know, and I knew from reading Blue Sky was a big thing at Disney um, and obviously all creative things. But, you know, they talk about it a lot in concept development and then you know, design or what's often called, um, oh, now I can't remember the word. How embarrassing. Um, <laughs> it's, your, it's all right. We know what you mean by design. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Well, right. And, um, and then, and then into construction and, you know, along the way they use models of all kinds. And actually at one point models was a separate stage. And I sort of realized that it's a tool more than a stage. So it, right. it takes this process they use and distills it and it, it sort of, I didn't worry about the project management aspect of it or, you know, land, you know, like the move of dirt around part of any new project, right? Which is usually months and There's months of moving phases, dirt around. Subphases of design, <laughs> right. schematic design right. development, and then phases right. of construction and, uh, as Schematic well. is the part of the word I couldn't yeah. find. Mm-hmm. That's right. Thank you. Um, um, and obviously, you know, well, that moving dirt around, a lot of times that's infrastructure and stuff that's going to be in, going to be invisible in the long term anyway. Um, so, we, you know, we start. It, this just you know for the purpose uh, to help the people who can't see what we're what we're looking at. Um, <laughs> it starts with the prologue where we I you know we identify the needs and requirements and constraints. Um, you know one of my favorite examples of that is is the space that is now <laughs> the now closed Stitch's Great Escape, right where it was uh, Flight to the Moon and then it was Mission to Mars. And then it was extraterrestrial encounter, and now it was Stitch's Great Escape. Um, they recognized a new need every so often, like going to the moon is boring. We stopped doing it a few years ago. We need to change this. Ooh, maybe we'll go to Mars one day, so we'll make it a Mars ride. Ten plus years later, they realized it seems we're not going to go to Mars, so maybe we need to do something else. And along the way, they had to identify requirements and constraints. You know, it needed to fit in Tomorrowland. It needed – the constraint was we don't want to tear down this building because it's pretty key to the whole architecture of the of the land. Um, and then they move it. So once they identify that – and again, I use prologue and epilogue sort of to, to bring a story side to it. Um, they go into blue sky and brainstorming. Um, and this is, you know, a distinction that I learned in my – the opening of this book – I tell a story about going to 
relationship with an Imagineer where I thought I had this all figured out. And I asked him a question. And the Imagineer was Jason Grant, and he was a concept designer. And in my head, I thought that meant he did concept development. I hadn't quite made the distinction that there's concept design and concept development. Um, and so I said, so you work after Blue Sky? And he said, no, I'm Blue Sky. Mm-hmm. A little moment of panic, like, oh, my God, I really don't know what I'm talking about, do I? You know, the little inner critic was cheering because he was right that I was wrong. Um, so um, so we go through Blue Sky and then into, you know, concept development where we – and the way I sort of talk about it is in Blue Sky, you identify what you want to do with as much detail as necessary – to go to the next step and to convince the people who asked you to do it in the first place that you're going in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And then concept development is, you know, and the example I use is uh, Expedition Everest, one of my one of my favorite attractions down in Disney World. Uh, you know, a runaway main, uh, runaway mine or train uh, ride through the Himalayas where you encounter the Yeti is a cool concept. But you can't start laying cement and doing blueprints from that. You need to know a lot more. So then they go into concept development and, and do all that. And then we go into you know design or schematic where you know what you want to build, but now you have to figure out how are you going to do it. Uh, what are the all the technical design, uh, electrical, facility? Well, in the three main pieces, facility, ride, and show. Um, and then once that's done, they go to construction. Along the way, they use the models. I'm not telling you anything you guys don't already know, of course. Um, and then and then we go to the epilogue, right, which is uh, they open it, and there's sometimes a bunch of multiple different types of openings. You know, they made soft opening or whatever. Uh, they evaluate how well did we do? Did we meet our needs? Did we, you know, violate our constraints? And then at least – and I assume other groups have the same thing. I know Imagineering calls it SQS or Show Quality Standards – where they, over time, they make sure that it's still fulfilling the original creative intent and that it's still good show. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little longer than an elevator pitch, but it sort of um, explains the, the process. Maybe I rambled a little too much. <laughs> I mean, you nailed it. it no, which, which is really... Um which is really what we do um, when when beginning any project, I think. Um, I know that when Mel um, starts, uh, I'm going to kind of wrap it right around to what we started with, when Mel takes um, new uh, designers, architects, people on the Storyland Studios team um, through orientation week, um, he, he really does walk, the, walk them through these steps. A uh, little different phrasing, but um, it's essentially the same thing. This is what they need to know to be able to create really compelling places that uh, people want to return to again and again and again. And I think for us, one of the big, big differences, uh, at least uh, in the non-experience um, industry and uh, in a client perception that I'm always trying to blow up is the idea that uh, this is supposed to be some kind of relay race. That, uh, you know, that you would uh, have the baton, for example, and you would pass it from uh, a client, you know, that has a perfect set of expectations and yeah. requirements and that he could pass that baton to uh, a perfect uh, designer and uh, he's going to drop a perfect set of plans. And then <laughs> and then the, the baton gets passed to uh, the, the the winner of the blind poker game, which is the, the contractor <laughs> with the low bid, you know, and that he's going to oh, he's going to his bid is somehow going to resemble the end price. Feel of, sorry. The, for that the, guy. the client or the developer ends up paying, uh, and really that that kind of thinking or that that wrong thinking creates kind of this uh, inherent adversarial 
um, relationship where because the client wasn't perfect to begin with yeah. uh, and because the designer wasn't perfect and um, you know with all the thousands of man hours that go into design documentation all the different disciplines the the opportunity for kind of uh, errors and and um, inconsistencies then result in uh, essentially contractor change orders um, and so the, you know the the one thing that uh, we're big proponents of and, and believers of and that, you know, uh, organizations like Disney and Universal that have been able to kind of create these teams that are able to kind of uh, kind of form uh, storm norm and then finally perform together yeah, you know, right. uh, <laughs> and get in the trenches is that you have. Uh, kind of this motley crew and the, the the different disciplines kind of from blue sky phase all the way to building uh, and they're on the journey together and they're able to kind of bring their brain damage their expertise uh, their experience uh, to the table and help uh, you know you know someone on the front end that you know might be this fun and wacky illustrator that has no concept of throughput or no concept of constructability <laughs> right. or phasing. But, you know, again, to, for the, for those guys to be able to walk through the, the process and the, the journey together um, again. So again, having continuity of uh, some team members, even if it's 1% involvement uh, at the, the blue sky phase, uh, you know, the, the, their involvement may gradually increase as you go through the process. But that, that's definitely a, uh, one of the ways that we've seen uh, that kind of gets projects number one built and then uh, you know helps them to succeed uh, as opposed to kind of the way that uh, guys often think that things happen. Right. Well, you know, one of the uh, thoughts that came to my mind when you were when you were saying that was one of the other things that so I go through you know each of these sections each of these steps in in fair detail fair amount of detail, but then I also try to point out that it's not as cut and dry as this like. Mm -hmm. just because like you said you know you passing the baton was the part that triggered me right just because you're quote done with concept development you move into design or schematic doesn't mean that you're done with concept development necessarily you may have to go back and so it's iterative right so there may be you know a full image of this uh, or diagram of this process may have reverse arrows going from every block to every other one just because you may have to now obviously want to minimize it for cost purposes and efficiency but it's bound to happen the other piece is that um, not every block is going to be the same size and not every mm -hmm. time there's probably projects where you don't need that big a distinction between your blue sky and your concept development. If it's a, a simple enough thing, you may be able to do that all as part of one or your concept may development, particularly in fields outside of theme park design, your concept development may be detailed enough that you don't need further design. So I try to show different models of how the process might work in different context you know sometimes blue sky may take a week sometimes it may take a year right um and so the the process isn't quite as you know cut and dry as it looks there's a lot more flexibility and adaptability to it yeah another aha for me um is the the idea that it's not like one phase is more important than the next or that uh the team members involved with one phase or more important for the next. And that's that's really important. I mean, I think especially for anyone interested in getting into the industry or for fans out there, um, you know, a lot of times we, we love uh, kind of almost glorifying, you know, uh, folks that can draw really well yeah, or right. people that are great <laughs> at articulating a, a creative concept. Um, but, you know, I, I'm just flashing back to working with uh, Chris Tyler, who 
um, is the the either the VP or president. I think she's the VP of Disneyland right now. Uh, but I was working with her when she was either an intern or just pretty fresh at a college as a young industrial engineer at Disneyland, and we were working through some of the the prologue needs requirements, you know, space programming, uh, you know, stuff for uh, the Disneyland Resort expansion back in, I don't know, 1999. I mean, a really long time ago. Um, and again, that stuff makes or breaks you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and again, obviously it was important enough uh, to where, you know, uh, for her, it ended up triggering her ability to kind of come up with uh, solutions like FastPass and, and to where now she's really kind of the owner calling some decisions in terms of, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take uh, this uh, new land or yeah. new ride, <laughs> wow. or, you know, this hourly capacity. I mean, and so it's, uh, you know, again, every phase of the process is is so important and it's not just uh, the the folks that get to cut the ribbon at the end of the day or the, the folks that, you know, get marched out for press releases and fan events. Um, so uh, yeah, just really again, see, valuing the contributions of all the different disciplines is huge. You really see a tapestry of, of talents and, and uh, disciplines and, and uh, they, no one step is done by, by one person. I think um, you kind of tend Correct. to see that when you take a big step back and look at the, the process. Well, Lou, right. it's uh, it's been a blast. Really appreciate the time you took with us to share with us more about your book. And, um, you know, you took uh, a whole lot of uh, your life uh, time and experience, your um, where the, your your career path and you you poured it into researching this really, really fascinating subject. And I know a lot of people would be re um, and would really gain a bunch of knowledge um, and abilities by uh, digging into your books themselves. So we really appreciate you. Thank you for uh, sharing it with us. And uh, we hope to have you come back again. What do you think? You're well, you're very welcome first and absolutely. I'd be welcome to come back. Um, awesome. So I, if you don't mind, sure. I have just a, re a reaction to what you were talking about right before you started to wrap up. Oh, but, I, uh, zip, 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 zip. I'm unwrapping up. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, <laughs> wide open. <laughs> one of the, one of the sort of aha moments that I sort of got, and it's a big one uh, in the second book was, um, and it shouldn't be such a surprise, but how interrelated things are and how much bigger and more complicated this is than a lot of us think. You know, a lot of us fans, you know, there are people who who read all the Imagineering books and understand it. And I'm, and I'm not saying that I have that much more insight than them. But the idea of you know, the interaction between design, you know, at the grant, at the large scale and operations, just thinking about the impact of operations um, is something that you know we just think oh they just build a roller coaster and it's gonna have you know like but you have to think about capacity that's right how are you gonna how are you gonna build the the queue so that you can absorb the capacity that you want you know and all those Safety things I mean, standards health standards all that marketability right. well, financial right. return <laughs> all that stuff that we you know as theme park fans we don't necessarily think about you know and and how just you know a, a simple little example of how interrelated some of the stuff is that we wouldn't think about um, Mickey's PhilharMagic, right, at Magic Kingdom. When designing and redesigning the theater, they had to lay in a whole bunch of new plumbing and electrical to support the special effects, right? Yeah, Who yeah. would have thought that you'd need to lie, lie plumbing and piping underneath the whole theater, the theater and underneath right. every seat, right? Um, so it's just, it's so much 
bigger and more, like I said, interconnected and interdependent than I think a lot of uh, a lot of theme park fans even consider or think about. It's it's a fascinating, and that's why there's no end of it study to this, just understanding how it all fits together. Well, what I appreciate about your books and your work is is it's so concise and succinct. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, um, a a couple of us in the Themed Entertainment Association had put together uh, kind of a document trying to, to, almost for clients, but also for ourselves to kind of just capture uh, kind of the the process and and uh, it's it's definitely a lot thicker convoluted <laughs> that 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 white paper is still available at uh, tiaconnect.org under the the resources um, and you know the attempt was to try to kind of wrap uh, you know our arms around um, the way that not only Disney uh, had done things but the way that uh, things are happening. Uh, currently in the industry. And the reality is they're happening lots of different ways by lots of different firms, but to try to sure, kind of yeah. establish kind of somewhat of a, a protocol or a, almost a, a, a standard operating procedure SOP, if if you will. But, uh, you know, definitely I think of that as a nice uh, uh, addendum <laughs> appendix to, mm-hmm. to, to your well, books, and, even though the intent yeah. is different, uh, you know, outside the industry. I don't know if this is the specific document that you're talking about, but I actually have a screenshot of the TA project design guideline, a yeah, little flow right. chart, yeah. in, right? Um, to to illustrate exactly how distilled this process is, because, you know, I go through the overview and basically my question is, is it really that simple? No, it's, it's really not that simple. <laughs> right. um, but at the same time, if I, you know, that process has you know, more little milestones than I care to count and seven tracks and five bases, you know? So, um, so yeah, it, it, um, it's, it's interesting. I've read that. If it's that same document, I have read that document because it's a little dry, I have to admit, but it, but it definitely helps you understand how, well, you want dry uh, again, just go. yesterday, we presented a critical path schedule from dream dedication day, uh, for an entire <laughs> new theme park, uh, a five-year schedule. And you want to go through a, a dry Gantt chart <laughs> with a lot, a lot of milestones, <laughs> but at the end of the day to realize to the, to the client, to the developer, this isn't dry at all. There's their focus like a, uh, a, an arrow to a bullseye on opening day on budget scope schedule, you know, and it is that simple. Like, mm-hmm. When right. does the the money start flowing, yeah. uh, and when do guests start experiencing this? And and um, so again, that can be something as uh, thrilling or as uh, mundane, uh, as mundane <laughs> as you want it to be, based on how much skin you've got in the game. But uh, anyways, again, thank you so much. It's I, really I'm really excited about your third you. book, and I'm thinking we've got to do it in park. We've got to do an actual. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because it's all about kind of uh, walking through and applying the the case story. So we'll we'll have. To do it what are you doing the... in November? Are you going to be at IAPA? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm no, going to. Oh, go yeah. ahead. I was going to say no. I would love to go to to um, a show or you know trade show or those events. Uh, it's just it's uh, it's hard to justify to my boss in the current job. That I'm <laughs> that's in. right. Um, that's right. Yeah. Um, Look, I'm going to no, go play for a week. Oh, we know right. for sure it's not a lot of play. <laughs> no, right. To fit the play so, right. We'll figure it's it out. Right. Hey, uh, for all the listeners, uh, you can go back about five minutes for my wrap up. We had just uh, enjoyed a lot of time with uh, Lou Prosperi, and we uh, look forward to doing it again. Thanks, Lou. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a great day. Mel, uh, I don't know about you, but Lou's 
outsider perspective uh, from the industry, not being within this industry, not working within this industry, I, I think it's refreshing because it gets to get a fresh take on what it is that everybody's doing here. And uh, it kind of helps us discover things we didn't actually know about ourselves. Yeah, it's kind of unique, uh, you know, even geographically, uh, him being in uh, the Northeast U.S., you know, kind of out of the ecosystem of, yeah. of where a lot of the stuff is happening in Orlando and L.A. Uh, and also, I think the second aspect of having a, a kind of a pretty specific strategy of, of taking these learnings from one industry and being able to apply uh, some of the, the language in the, the others. I mean, when you're, when you're in it, when you're in the trenches, yeah. you're working for different companies, different teams. Even at Disney, they're always really updating processes and changing. There, there's, there really aren't the, the rules set in stone. But, but I think, uh, again, Lou's perspective was really just helpful, kind of taking a holistic overview, looking at kind of the, the sources he was able and kind of synthesizing that and, and also some simplifying it in a way that's applicable. So just a, what a great uh, primer to not uh, just our industry, but again, taking those lessons and brain damage incurred <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, being able to, to share that uh, in, into, you know, creative insights for other industries. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, it's great to have Lou on the show. Well, uh, I see that the river is slowly bending up ahead, Mel. Let's say we make for home. Dole whips at Tropical Hideaway sound pretty good oh, right now. Oh my goodness, I'm on. I'm in. Until next time, thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We're really grateful you take the time to listen to your show, whether it's on your commute or in your exercise time, your jogging, your mountain climbing, whatever it is you do. Because of you, we're able to do what we do, and we can't thank you enough. Would you do us one more favor? Would you leave us a positive review on iTunes podcasts? You know, that really helps us get the word out. A lot of more people will find the show. If you will uh, just leave a couple words, uh, five stars would be great. Share the show with a lot more of your friends. We'd really, really appreciate it. We also want to thank our guest, Lou Prosperi. Follow Lou on Instagram and Twitter at Lou Prosperi. And pick up a copy of Lou's latest books at imagineeringtoolbox.wordpress.com. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com. An insider's look at theme park design by theme park designers. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at themedattraction. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Find him at barryrhill.com. You know, Mel, as much as I like Barry, he's never been a big fan of our little jungle boat here. He thinks it's beneath him. Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>